rhapsody, enthusiastic expression of feeling, an epic poem, a recitation, highly emotional utterance, literary, words, music in a regular form, stitched together, improvised, a collection of effusive, extravagant discourse, rapture, ecstasy. You're listening to A Rose Rhapsody. And now, The Read. Fall, written by Richard C. Washer, read by me, Chris Stezen. I was going to write of the burgundy trees and the cool, crisp air that carries on its sharp edge the sweet smell of burning wood, and of my father leaning like an old oak over the remains of a recently felled tree. I was going to write of the whispered monotony of paper-like leaves and my father's deep-voiced drone as he carefully repeated the details of how the tree was felled, as if the loss was really one of flesh and blood, and the leaves. I was going to write of how the trees dropped the occasional undulating leaf onto the roof of the house. I looked at the old man's white hair turning in the breeze, and I looked at the lazy dance of gray smoke rising from the neighbor's chimney. I looked at the burgundy leaves and the roof and the cool breeze and the blue, blue sky. The letter I received that morning detailing my transfer orders came to mind and I was swept up in a soaring anticipation of freedom and a sense of gratitude for a justified escape from the obligatory duties to an aging father. I was on the brink of a goal and I filled my lungs with the inspiration of it all. My father made a sweeping motion with his right arm in the direction of my feet. I gazed down at the large, proud chunks of the tree, and I wondered if humans looked so magnificent when cut down from life. I followed the direction of my father's gesturing forefinger and noted a long, narrow trough that extended from where we stood to within ten feet of the house. I wasn't listening to his words, but I surmised the subject was still the fallen tree, and I wondered why he evaded the issue. Why didn't he respond to my news? I was going to write of my old home set proudly against the blue sky beneath the tall oaks and of how I still felt like a child on that property, even so many years later. So many years older, and it was still with dread that I faced him with the news that I knew he would resist, even though the triumph was mine. The future was mine. Pride should have been his. The rabbit staccato of a woodpecker cracked through the valley of trees. The paper leaves were silent, but my father droned on. He pointed to an oak that had divided into two large trunks, one of which leaned in the direction of the house. Some distance up in the tree, barely visible, a heavy cord extended from one trunk to the other. And presumably, he went on to explain how the cord functioned to control just how far the trunks leaned. I was only aware of my own voice, punctuating his plodding words with grunts of affirmation. I began to wonder if he'd heard me. I considered explaining again the potential, the possibilities of the future, the importance of this transfer. But 
I didn't. He droned. I grunted. I was going to write of standing in a memory while gazing up at wine-filled trees and the infinitely blue sky, and of the humble majesty of my forsaken home, I was going to write of walking in a memory, and the surrealistic slow motion of my footsteps sinking in mildewed grass. I was withdrawn, and standing apart, watching, watching the memory of a walk I took with my father, amidst drops of red wine and the faintly charred breeze, and yet I was there, standing between the past and the future, grasping at a falling leaf as it spiraled, stem first to the ground. Suddenly, I was aware of a silence. I turned to find my father standing by the house, looking at me. His old body was shaking. His lower lip was quivering. You're all I've got left, he cried. All I've got left. A tingling chill crept across my skin for a moment. I couldn't move or speak or even think. I haven't got long, he went on, but, but you do what you have to do. He looked away from me as he drew his arms in to steady himself. I didn't respond. I still couldn't move. I stood riveted by his display of emotion and my inability to say or do anything. I'm okay, he said after a moment waving me off as if I'd gone to comfort him, but I hadn't. I watched him walk back into the house, tremulous, uncertain, bracing himself on the side of the house for support. For a moment, I stood balanced between concern for him and anger at his ploy for sympathy. A sudden gust of wind rustled the leaves violently, and then, as abruptly stopped, the thought crossed my mind. I should have embraced him. I should have comforted him. But the idea repulsed me, and I was remorseful for being repulsed, and hurt for being denied. The timeless sensation of memory was gone. Banality and a surge of depression rooted me to the ground. I looked up at the house, I looked into the trees. Looked at the sky, and I felt I could never write of them. Pushing into autumn now Wasn't much of a summer anyhow Times are strange and I'm old And everybody's dying I'm not much of a man I know Last of those passed long ago When I heard old Dick Winters was gone I started into crying And I miss you 
I hardly knew you You've been a true companion through the years And I talk to you And I talk through you So many lives I never led So many paths I never tread I was young and I was blithe And I took it as it came It's not much use for my kind now I'm done with all that anyhow Close the door and fade away As if I never had a name And I miss you Though I hardly knew you In a silent witness all these years And I talk to you And I talk through you I know that you're a phantom built from tears Give thanks for blessings from above Give thanks that the ones we love Cling to us fiercely In spite of all the ways we fail So many lives we never led are the roads we chose instead and all at once we know and don't know the ending of this tale and I miss you though I hardly knew you Been a true companion through the years Been a silent witness through these years
At the lakeshore, there was another rowboat drawn up. The two Indians stood waiting. Nick and his father got in the stern of the boat, and the Indians shoved it off, and one of them got into row. Uncle George sat in the stern of the camp rowboat. The young Indian shoved the camp boat off and got into row Uncle George. The two boats started off in the dark. Nick heard the oarlocks of the other boat quite a way ahead of them in the mist. The Indians rowed with quick, choppy strokes. Nick lay back with his father's arm around him. It was cold on the water. The Indian who was rowing them was working very hard, but the other boat moved farther ahead in the mist all the time. Where are we going, Dad? Nick asked. Over to the Indian camp. There's an Indian lady very sick. Oh, said Nick. Across the bay, they found the other boat beached. Uncle George was smoking a cigar in the dark. The young Indian pulled the boat way up on the beach. Uncle George gave both the Indians cigars. They walked up from the beach through a meadow that was soaking wet with dew following the young Indian who carried a lantern. Then they went into the woods and followed a trail that led to the logging road that ran back into the hills. It was much lighter on the logging road as the timber was cut away on both sides. The young Indian stopped and blew out his lantern and they all walked on along the road. They came around a bend and a dog came out barking. Ahead were the lights of the shanties where the Indian bark peelers lived. More dogs rushed out at him. The two Indians sent them back to the shanties. In the shanty nearest the road, there was a light in the window. An old woman stood in the doorway, holding a lamp. Inside, on a wooden bunk, lay a young Indian woman. She had been trying to have her baby for two days. All the old women in the camp had been helping her. The men had moved off up the road to sit in the dark and smoke out of range of the noise she made. She screamed, just as Nick and the two Indians followed his father and Uncle George into the shanty. She lay in the lower bunk, very big under a quilt. Her head was turned to one side. In the upper bunk was her husband. He'd cut his foot very badly with an axe three days before. He was smoking a pipe. The room smelled very badly. Nick's father ordered some water to be put on the stove, and while it was heating, he spoke to Nick. This lady's going to have a baby, Nick, he said. I know, said Nick. You don't know, said his father. Listen to me. What she's going through is called being in labor. The baby wants to be born, and she wants it to be born. All her muscles are trying to get the baby born. That is what is happening when she screams. I see, said Nick. Just then the woman cried out. Oh, Daddy, can't you give her something to make her stop screaming? Asked Nick. No, I haven't any anesthetic, his father said. But her screams are not important. I don't hear them because they are not important. The husband in the upper bunk rolled over against the wall. The woman in the kitchen motioned to the doctor that the water was hot. 
Nick's father went into the kitchen, poured about half of the water out of the big kettle into a basin. Into the water left in the kettle, he put several things he unwrapped from a handkerchief. These must boil, he said, and began to scrub his hands in the basin of hot water with a cake of soap he'd brought from the camp. Nick watched his father's hands scrubbing each other with the soap. While his father washed his hands very carefully and thoroughly, he talked. You see, Nick, babies are supposed to be born headfirst, but sometimes they're not. When they're not, they make a lot of trouble for everybody. Maybe I'll have to operate on this lady. We'll know in a little while. When he was satisfied with his hands, he went in and went to work. Pull back that quilt, will you, George? He said. I'd rather not touch it. Later, when he started to operate, Uncle George and three Indian men held the woman still. She bit Uncle George on the arm, and Uncle George said, Damn squaw, bitch! And the young Indian who rode Uncle George over laughed at him. Nick held the basin for his father. It all took a long time. His father picked the baby up and slapped it to make it breathe, handed it to the old woman. See, it's a boy, Nick, he said. How do you like being an intern? Nick said, all right. He was looking away so as not to see what his father was doing. There, that gets it, said his father. Put something into the basin. Nick didn't look at it. Now, his father said, there's some stitches to put in. You can watch this or not, Nick, just as you like. I'm going to sew up the incision I made. Nick did not watch. His curiosity had been gone for a long time. His father finished and stood up. Uncle George and the three Indian men stood up. Nick put the basin out in the kitchen. Uncle George looked at his arm. The young Indian smiled reminiscently. I'll put some peroxide on that, George, the doctor said. He bent over the Indian woman. She was quiet now and her eyes were closed. She looked very pale. She did not know what had become of the baby or anything. I'll be back in the morning, the doctor said, standing up. The nurse should be here from St. Ignace by noon. and She'll bring everything we need. He was feeling exalted and talkative as football players are in the dressing room after a game. That's one for the medical journal, George, he said. Doing a caesarean with a jagknife and sewing it up with nine-foot tapered gut leaders. Uncle George was standing against the wall looking at his arm. Oh, you're a great man, all right, he said. Ought to have a look at the proud father. They're usually the worst sufferers in these little affairs, the doctor said. I must say he took it all pretty quietly. He pulled back the blanket from the Indian's head. His hand came away wet. He mounted on the edge of the lower bunk with the lamp in one hand and looked in. The Indian lay with his face toward the wall. His throat had been cut from ear to ear. The blood had flowed down into a pool where his body sagged the bunk. His head rested on his left arm. The open razor lay, edge up, in the blankets. Take Nick out of the shanty, George, the doctor said. There was no need of that. Nick, standing in the door of the kitchen, had a good view of the upper bunk when his father, the lamp in one hand, tipped the Indian's head back. It was just beginning to be daylight when they walked along the logging road back toward the lake. I'm terribly sorry I brought you along, Nicky, said his father, all his post-operative exhilaration gone. It was an awful mess to put you through. Do ladies always have such a hard time having babies? Nick asked. No, that was very, very exceptional. Why did he kill himself, Daddy? I don't know, Nick. He couldn't stand things, I guess. Do many men kill themselves, Daddy? Not very many, Nick. Do many women? Hardly ever. Don't they ever? Oh, yes, they do, sometimes. Daddy? Yes. Where did Uncle George go?
He'll turn up all right. Is dying hard, Daddy? No. I think it's pretty easy, Nick. It all depends. They were seated in the boat, Nick in the stern, his father rowing. The sun was coming up over the hills. A bass jumped, making a circle in the water. Nick trailed his hand in the water. It felt warm in the sharp chill of the morning. In the early morning on the lake, sitting in the stern of the boat with his father rowing, he felt quite sure that he would never die. You've been listening to Indian Camp by Ernest Hemingway. I'm Chris Stezen.
Episodes of The Rose Rhapsody drop the first Monday of every month and can be found on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you take your listening pleasure. That tune you've been hearing is Burgundy Trees by Richard C. Washer. It features the fabulous pianist Adrian Ruiz alongside the big bluesy horn of Marcus Roots. To download a playlist or learn more about us and what we do, head over to www.theroserhapsody.com. And if you love interesting new content as much as we do, spread the word or drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This week's podcast was produced by Trevor Cochran and Richard C. Washer and is a product of the Rose Theatre Company, All Rights Reserved. I'm Leslie Kobolinski.